in-depth podcast where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hello everyone and welcome to episode one of the Skin Depth podcast. My name is Caden Carver. I'm one of your hosts for the Skin Depth podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss a broad range of research topics, ranging from the use of plasmapheresis versus IVIG for treating Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, to the use of 3D printed tactile learning tools for medical student education. At the end of the episode, we will test your knowledge with the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week, as well as the dermoscopy question of the week. With this being said, I'm excited to get started, so let's go ahead and jump right in. The first study we'll take a look at comes from JAMA Dermatology and was published by Miyamoto et al. This study aimed to investigate how plasmapheresis compares to IVIG as the first treatment following failed corticosteroid therapy for Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Stevens-Johnson syndrome, or SJS, and toxic epidermal necrolysis, TEN, are severe adverse cutaneous reactions to medication or infection. Initially, they present as flu-like symptoms, and then a sloughing rash eventually develops across the skin and mucous membranes. SJS and TEN are difficult to treat. Complications often include sepsis, multi-organ failure, and death, with a mortality rate of 10 and 30% for SJS and TEN, respectively. Miyamoto et al. were curious if patients who failed corticosteroids would show better outcomes if the second treatment was plasmapheresis or IVIG. To answer this question, they performed a nine-year retrospective cohort study in Japan with sample size 266, measuring in-hospital mortality, length of hospital stay, and overall medical costs, and comparing the, those outcomes between the various treatments. Following the study, researchers found that plasmapheresis was used first after steroids for 53 patients, while IVIG was used first after steroids for 213 patients. No significant differences in mortality rate were observed between the groups. Patients treated with plasmapheresis had an overall longer hospital stay of 45.3 days compared to 32.8 days in the IVIG group. This was significant with a p-value of 0.04. Additionally, the plasmapheresis group incurred a higher overall cost of medical care for their hospital stay, averaging $34,262 versus $23,054 in the IVIG group. This was significant with a p-value of 0.009. Limitations of this study include a possible confounding as some patients initially underwent plasmapheresis and were subsequently treated with IVIG. Additionally, the generalizability of this study is limited as only patients in Japanese hospitals were included in the analysis. The main takeaway from this study was that no significant difference in mortality was seen when initiating plasmapheresis versus IVIG therapy in SJS or TEN patients who failed corticosteroid therapy. It is important to note that plasmapheresis may be associated with longer hospital stays and overall higher medical costs.
Next, we'll take a look at an article published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology by Wang et al. in June of 2023. This study investigated paroxetine as a possible treatment for refractory erythema of rosacea. As you know, rosacea is a chronic inflammatory condition causing facial erythema, telangiectasias, and papulopuscular skin lesions. While oral doxycycline, topical bromonidine, and topical oxymetazoline are current treatment options, there are cases that are refractory to these meds. The goal of this multi-center, prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial with a sample size of 97 was to evaluate the efficacy of paroxetine for treating refractory erythema of rosacea. In the study, subjects received 25 mg of paroxetine daily for 12 weeks. Placebo was given to control subjects. Post-trial clinical erythema assessments, or CEA, were used to evaluate changes from baseline. Following completion of the study, researchers noted that 42.9% of patients treated with paroxetine demonstrated improvement in erythema versus 20.8% of controls. This was significant with a p-value of 0.02. The paroxetine group also reported an improvement in overall flushing when compared to controls with a p-value of 0.047. Researchers did note that burning sensation improved greater than or equal to 2 points from baseline more frequently in the paroxetine treatment group at 46.9% versus 18.8% with a p-value of 0.003. Limitations of this trial include that it only used a single dose regimen of paroxetine at 25 milligrams. Future studies should explore different dosages of paroxetine for treating erythema of rosacea. Additionally, the follow-up period was relatively short, thus limiting the ability to assess long-term efficacy of paroxetine. The main takeaway from this study was that paroxetine may be an effective treatment option for treating rosacea-induced erythema, flushing, and burning. Next, we'll cover a study published in the British Journal of Dermatology in December of 2022 by Suzanne Arnold et al. This study aimed to understand the experience of individuals living with vulvar lichen sclerosis as background, vulvar lichen sclerosis is an inflammatory condition characterized by atrophic, tender, or pruritic patches. VLS can profoundly affect patient's self-image and quality of life. The following qualitative interview study sought to better understand the patient perspective of those living with VLS. Virtual interviews or phone calls were conducted with 20 patients living with VLS who were identified from online support groups or social media. Following completion of the study, researchers noted three major themes from patient interviews. These included, number one, missed opportunities, referring to delayed or misdiagnosis, lack of information, or unsatisfying interactions within healthcare. Two, learning to live with a chronic condition, which included the patient work involved in learning to care for VLS and its impact on everyday life. And three, 
living a secret life, which refers to how VLS is an isolating and often hidden disease and how there remains a stigma with diseases affecting the anal genital region. This study was limited by its use of semi-structured patient interviews. Additional controlled studies would be helpful in better understanding the important themes in vulvar lichen sclerosis. Additionally, generalizability of this study may be limited as the study involved only 20 participants identified through social media or online support groups who primarily self-identified as white. The main takeaway from this study is that further efforts are needed to provide better care for patients living with vulvar lichen sclerosis ranging from helping patients feel heard and correctly diagnosing VLS to educating patients on self-management and providing community support. The next study was published in Pediatric Dermatology by Ho et al. This study investigated cutaneous warts in pediatric oncology patients. Warts are common benign epidermal lesions caused by human papillomavirus, or HPV. While generally self-limited, warts may have increased prevalence and longer duration in immunocompromised children. This 10-year retrospective study by Ho et al. evaluated the characteristics and outcomes of cutaneous warts in pediatric oncology patients, 37.3% of whom were on active oncology treatment, and 62.7 of whom were not on active oncology treatment. The study enrolled 72 pediatric oncology patients, 55.1% with hematologic malignancies, 15.4% with CNS tumors, 11.5% with neuroblastoma, 7.7% with bone tumors, and 1.3% with melanoma. Among study participants, plantar warts were the most common type of cutaneous wart at 53.8%. 60.3% of patients had greater than 5 warts at the time of presentation. 59 patients were treated with cryotherapy, and 50 patients were treated with topical salicylic acid. 56% of patients actively receiving oncology treatment had persistent or worsened warts with treatment compared to 13.4% of patients who were not on active oncology treatment. Only 24% of patients on active anti-cancer treatment had complete resolution of their warts compared to 63.3% of patients not on active oncology treatment. This study highlighted the challenges of treating warts in pediatric oncology patients currently receiving active anti-cancer treatment who are more likely to have persistent or worsening warts with treatment compared to patients not receiving anti-cancer treatment. For this week's innovation article, we take a look at an article published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology by Dunnick et al. in May of 2023. This study investigated the role of a dermatology tactile learning tool in medical student education. To better educate medical students and emphasize the importance of skin cancer examination, a 3D printed silicone tactile learning tool was created. First year medical students at the University of Colorado piloted the use of the TLT, or tactile learning tool, in a pre-clerkship dermatology course. Their satisfaction with the tool, confidence in identifying lesions, 
importance of and overall usefulness of the TLT in understanding skin lesions was evaluated. 184 students participated in the pre-clerkship course, with 52% responding to the TLT-specific survey using a 5-point Likert scale, with 5 being the most favorable. The tactile learning tool was rated at 4.49 on the Likert scale in its ability to help describe skin lesions. It was rated a 4.25 for its ability to improve confidence in describing skin lesions and a 4.20 on the student's opinion of how important the TLT was in the use of first-year medical school education. It was also rated 4.34 on whether the tactile learning tool helps solidify knowledge of skin lesions. This study demonstrates that utilizing a tactile learning tool in a first-year medical education dermatology course may enhance student confidence in determining and understanding skin lesions. Next, we have the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week. A 32-year-old man presented with a one-month history of enlarging necrotic chest wounds he reported a three-year history of daily fentanyl use by injection into his neck and arm veins. CT of the chest showed osteomyelitis of the clavicles and manubrium, in addition to soft tissue ulceration and inflammation. Adulteration of fentanyl by which of the following substances is most likely to have contributed to the development of these superinfected wounds? Is it A. Cocaine B. Levomisole C. Methamphetamine D. Talcum powder or E. Xylazine The answer is E. Xylazine. This is also known as TRANK and it acts as an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist and has only been approved for veterinary use. It is becoming an increasingly prevalent additive to fentanyl in the United States. Xylazine is associated with skin injury regardless of the site of injection. Repeated exposure to xylazine by injection has been associated with severe necrotic skin ulceration. Of note, xylazine-containing products may be sold under the street names Trank, Trank Dope, Sleep Cut, Philly Dope, and Zombie Drug. Structurally, xylazine is similar to levomisole, clonidine, and tizanidine, and may share uh, similar clinical effects. Like clonidine, xylazine acts as a central alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist in the brainstem and causes a rapid decrease in the release of norepinephrine and dopamine in the central nervous system. In discussion of the other answers, for A, cocaine, Cocaine is a vasoconstrictor and can cause ulceration, particularly if it's uh, combined or laced with levomisole. Cocaine typically would present with drug-induced puritis. For B, levomisole, this is an antihelminthic agent commonly added to cocaine since levomisole increases the stimulant effect. However, it can induce a drug-induced vasculitis or vasculopathy and it commonly appears as purpura or necrosis of the earlobes. For C, methamphetamine, cutaneous manifestations often include puritis, formication, 
delusions of parasitosis, and excoriation or self-induced ulcer. For D, talcum powder. This is widely used in cosmetic products, including baby powder, and there is a growing concern for a link between talcum powder and cancer. However, it's not widely associated with ulceration. Now we will move on to the dermoscopy question of the week. I realized that being in podcast form, it might be a little bit difficult to do a dermoscopy question just since you cannot see um, the image, but we'll do our best to describe the presentation so you can try to envision it in your head prior to making an answer. We have a 68-year-old male presenting with a pink papule on the left calf. He says he first noticed it a few months ago. The dermoscopic exam is notable for pinpoint or dotted red vessels arranged in characteristic curvilinear lines, classically described as a pearl necklace or string of pearls. These lesions also frequently are associated with scaly collarette around the periphery. What is your diagnosis? The answer choices are A. Basal cell carcinoma B. Amelanotic melanoma C. Clear cell acanthoma or D. Pyogenic granuloma The answer is C. Clear cell acanthoma Clear cell acanthoma is a slow-growing benign epidermal tumor that usually appears on the lower extremities in middle to elderly aged individuals. While clear cell acanthoma is relatively rare, it exhibits unique features under dermoscopy that can distinguish it from other non-pigmented diagnoses. As we described, it is notable for pinpoint or dotted red vessels arranged in characteristic curvilinear lines, classically described as a pearl necklace or string of pearls. Also pictured... Uh, You can't see that, but these lesions frequently possess a scaly collarette around the periphery. And just like that, we come to the end of this first episode for the Skin Depth Podcast. Thanks for joining us for discussion of these articles and questions here today. We hope it has been educational and provides you with insight into the latest dermatology research. For additional content, feel free, as always, to visit our website at skindepthderm.com, and we look forward to seeing you for the next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.